John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. These are the words of Jesus. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. All right, 11 a.m. We're glad that you're here. I'm going to need you guys to engage a little bit more than the 9. It's the 11. You've already had coffee and some of that stuff like that, all right? So we're excited that you're here today. Uh, we're continuing in our series that we're calling the, the Prayers of Jesus. And what we are doing is uh, we said that we're sort of enrolling ourselves in the school of prayer. And Jesus is going to be our teacher. And so this is the third week that we've been in John chapter 17. And uh, Pastor Tyler did a phenomenal job last week of teaching us why sort of this is called the high priestly prayer, which is language that we don't you know, really use that much. Um, in the Old Testament, in the worship in the temple with the people of God, there were a number of offices. Uh, there was the prophet, which brought the words of God to the people. So the prophet would stand up and say, thus says the Lord. But the priest would take the words of God, or, or I'm sorry, the words of the people to God through prayer. And so what we see in this chapter in John 17 is Jesus being our high priest, teaching us um, how to pray by observing his prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have in the scriptures of Jesus. And the reason why we're doing this series is, um, quite frankly, the discipline of prayer is always the thing that sort of crawls off the table when it comes to spiritual disciplines. I've never met anyone that was like, you know, I am killing it in my prayer life. I don't really need any other advice or anything like that to really learn. I'm just praying fire down from heaven all day, every day, all right? It's always like, ah, man, and that's a great, that's a good desire. Secondly, um, I think everything that's going on in the world, we need to learn and understand the, the power of prayer. It is one of the most powerful, but at the same time, elusive things that we have in our faith. And I think that if we just for a glimpse could understand what happens when we pray, um, it would really solve what we're understanding to be these problems in the world. But I'm going to set us up where we're going today. Um, anytime anybody says a certain phrase to me, it sort of means, it, it means a lot to me. You know, my ears sort of perk up and, and I tend to pay attention a bit more. Apart from the fact of, man, I love those tennis shoes. There's a number of phrases that people can say, but anytime I'm in a conversation and somebody says these words, um, I'm praying for you. It just, my day, I just sort of stop and it just hits me different. It's, uh, it means a lot to me 
when somebody says that, when somebody says, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for your family, and, and maybe you're the same way. Anytime, maybe there's something going on in your life, the busyness of the day, something's going on, when somebody says, hey, thanks for sharing that, I'm praying for you, it almost lets you feel like, man, I'm not, I'm not alone, this matters, I'm going to make it, all of that. And there was one person in particular, um, Miss Margaret Cross, and, and you've heard about Miss Margaret many times. Uh, Westside Church of God started in the basement of Margaret and Ted Cross's home uh, 50 plus years ago. And she's just a saint of a woman. Miss Margaret went on to be with the Lord a number of years back. And I would go and visit Miss Margaret, me and Pastor Tyler and a number of people would visit her. And, and towards the end, in her sickness and in her suffering, we would have to keep the visits a little bit shorter just because her strength, um, she wasn't able to carry conversation a lot. But no matter what happened in the visit, I would always get up from the chair and go sit beside her in her rocking chair and kneel down and grab her hand and pray for her. Um, and then Miss Margaret would pray. And something special filled the room whenever Margaret prayed. And then at the end, always, I would say, I love you and I'm always praying for you. And she would grab my hand and she would pat it and she would say, I pray for you and your children's names Every day, every day. And it was just like, you know, I was like, I'm, thank you. That's probably the only way I'm going to make it to heaven. Miss Margaret is like having you pray for me. It meant so much to have a caliber um, of a saint of a woman like that, knowing that, that she's praying for me. Um, and maybe you've experienced something like that as well. Somebody that meant a lot to you, uh, just a, a, a Christian that you looked up to. Um, but what if I told you this? What if I told you that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, is praying for you? What if I told you um, the very God of the Bible not only knows you by name, but is praying for you. I mean, listen, Westside, that's not a statement we just brush past and then go eat Mexican, okay? That's a statement that'll change your life. Understanding that this Jesus that we see in the scriptures, and, and that's the thesis today, that's, that's the big idea, that Jesus Christ is praying for you. You see, it's right there in John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So we've understood in John chapter 17 that you can break the prayer down in sort of three categories. The first number of verses, Jesus is praying for himself. And, and we learn some attributes as to what it is to pray for ourselves. It's not so much focusing on how you pray, but who you're praying to. Jesus says, Father. And then Pastor Tyler walked us through Jesus praying for the apostles. When Jesus says, um, I'm not only asking for these only. That's for the apostles and the followers that are with him in the room. And then Jesus looks through the corridors of time and eternity. And says, God... Father, I don't ask only for these, but also those who will believe in me. I mean, that is a profound truth to understand. 
And it's actually so important that we see the rest of the New Testament writers reminding us of this fact. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Yeah, the 9 o'clock didn't aim in there uh, either. I, I just said that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, I'll give you another go at it, all right? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? And who is interceding for us? What we understand through church history and the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome and these Christians facing persecution, that this was not just a doctrine of the mind, some theological concept to sit around and muse over, if you will. This understanding of Jesus Christ praying for his followers was something that the first century Christians literally hung their life on while they're facing persecution. In a world of turmoil, they understood that this Jesus didn't just leave them as orphans or just walk away, but literally that he's interceding for them on their behalf. And the word interceding literally means that you have two parties and somebody is reconciling or sort of standing in the gap. Jesus is praying for you. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. <laughs> That's good news. That means that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done that nobody knows about, no matter how much guilt and shame, no matter what addiction, what divorce, no matter what you've gone through, there is nothing, there is nothing, as the book of Acts would say, that Jesus Christ is not able to save you from. That he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love this verse because it almost ratchets it up a level. It says that he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is praying for you. There's an old dead guy that you don't care about by the name of Robert Murray McShane. And Robert Murray McShane said these words. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Listen, if, if you write things on post-it notes and note cards or something, this needs to go on the bathroom mirror. This, this is what it's about if I could hear, I mean, the understanding of somebody, that moment, you know that moment that I've had with Miss Margaret, you've had that yourself. Somebody praying for you, they're saying the words that you need, they're lifting you up, it's giving you hope, it's giving you peace. What if you could hear Jesus praying for you by name? And the reality is, is that is a truth. So it if we understand that's where we're going, that's the thesis that Jesus Christ is praying for us. Um, and we're going to learn how that affects our prayer life. We have to sort of ask the question, um, what is he praying about? If Jesus is praying for me, what is Jesus praying about? And when I was looking at the text and sort of wrestling it, there were a number of words that jumped out. And there's three B words in the text. And I'm a simple man. Maybe I've listened to a lot of rap music. But I just like alliteration and I like sort of a cadence to things. And when I looked in the text, there were three words that jumped out. Jesus says in verse 20, I pray that they would 
believe in me. And then he says in verse 23, I pray that they would become perfectly one. And then he says that they may be with me. So Jesus is praying for you. And what Jesus is praying for you is that you would believe in him. We're going to discuss what that means because some of us, especially in sort of Popper Bluff, it's like, well, I've already done that. I did that one time when I walked the aisle and they kept playing just as I am over and over and over and over and over until somebody walked or something like that. I thought I've already done that. We're going to discuss what that means. And then what is this idea to become one? We've talked a lot about unity. And then Jesus asking that we would be with him. So here we go. Point number one is this. Jesus prays that we would believe in him. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. When it comes to this understanding of the word believe, um, it's, it's important, okay? And so here, here, here's a couple thoughts. The first thing is this. Um, Belief in Jesus is the act of surrendering and centering your life on Jesus' life. Now, here's what I mean by that. The word believe that Jesus uses, it, it, it can be used a number of ways. So, so follow with me. We're going to learn something. God forbid we come to church and learn something from the Bible, okay? It can either be used as a verb or a noun. Most of the time, it's used as a noun. And when you discuss it and say it, it's used as a noun, this concept of belief. I believe in God. John uses the word believe 67 plus times and uses it as a verb. So the word believe is, is an action. It means something. And what we understand in the Christian life is, is when you understand the beauty, the sovereignty and the weight of who Jesus is, and at the same time, the weight and magnitude of our own sin, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a Christian is to lay your life down right in front of Jesus and say, it's not mine anymore, it's yours. And we understand this in concept, but let's bridge the gap. That means my time, my money, all is no longer mine. I don't make rogue decisions anymore. I live by the will of God found in the word of God. So it's laying my life down going, this is not mine. It's been given as a gift. But it's not just the surrendering. It's also the centering your life upon Jesus' life. You see, Jesus doesn't revolve around our life. It's not like an accessory. It's not like, well, I have my, the, you know, the kids got the, the, you know, the soccer thing, and then the gymnastics, and then we got this, and then we got all of this, and then this. And you know what I want to do someday is I want to have the house with the lab, with the boat, with the fence, with the John Deere tractor. Am I speaking Popper Bluff language right now? Come on, you know what I'm saying? I've got all these plans. Oh, oh yeah. We should probably go to church. I've got the stuff and the thing, and I've got these visions, and I've got... And oh yeah, it's probably like a good, that is like antithesis. That's almost like antichrist. What it is to center is to say that Jesus is at the center and everything else revolves around him. That's what we understand prayer to be. And listen, that is no more revealed than in our prayers. That's why like the act of even like journaling your prayers is a great thing to go th to do because it's good to look back. It's good to look and evaluate. And I would challenge you, when it comes to our prayer life, is this belief seen in our prayer life of what it is to surrender our life and center our life on Jesus' life? 
But the second thing is this. The fuel for our faith is the word and works of the apostles. Um, Jesus says, I pray that they would believe who will believe through their word. Who's the their? Well, it's the apostles. It's the followers that are in the room. As the book of Ephesians would say, that the apostles are the foundation for our faith. They are the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. This is the criteria to be an apostle, okay? So um, that gift, people kind of have those same type of personalities, but there's no more apostles because they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and they were also personally and verbally commissioned by Jesus himself, Anybody meet the criteria? Okay, going on, right? These guys take the gospel of Jesus Christ literally to the ends of the earth. Listen, that's why you're sitting in this church in Popper Bluff, Missouri, is because the apostles took the word of God out. And the reason why I bring this up is because there's this new kind of thing now um, that our Christian faith is not historically or critically reliable. And listen to me, that is not true. That is not true. At Westside, what we say is big questions require big work. So you cannot cop out on this Christianity thing by saying, well, I mean, didn't just a bunch of white guys write the Bible because you saw a two-second Joe Rogan clip on Facebook, okay? That's not going to fly. Big questions require big work, and our faith, the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts, all of these things, you can pursue the Christian faith through the historical reliability of the apostles. And the reason why I bring that up is, is if you're questioning Christianity, peeking over the fence, maybe you're a non-Christian, listen to me. The fuel for your faith is not going online and finding a bunch of people who already agree with you. Because I'm exhausted with that, okay? You can find the Facebook group for the people that left the church because they didn't have the, you know, the club for people who owned cats and knitted sweaters, okay? You can find all that stuff. But when you begin to fuel your faith with the challenge and the witness of the apostles and historical reliability, things begin to change. And then the third thing is this. We place our belief in a person, Jesus. Um, what does he say, John chapter 17, verse 20? Father, I don't pray for just these, but for those who will believe in the denomination. What denomination does he say? Does anybody have their Bible in their hand? What, does he say Baptist? Does he say Church of God something? What is it? He doesn't say that, does he? Um, I pray not only for these, but for those who will believe in the Republican Party, that's it. That's what he's got, right? Or the Democrat, I don't know, fill in the blank. Yeah, he says, believe in me. He says, believe in me. And listen, our faith is built upon Jesus Christ. Nothing else. No programs, no kids programs, small group, this out of the other. Listen, your faith is not in any of those things. Those things supplement your faith. At the end of the day, our belief is placed in a person. And what we believe this Christianity to be is it's a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we're learning about prayer. is because prayer is one of those avenues that we've learned in that relationship. Just like all of the relationships that you have have communication, we're learning that the word of God is God communicating to us and our prayers are us communicating back to God. Listen, this thing is built on a person and it's built upon Jesus Christ. And so he is praying that, that we would believe in him. And by the way, 
This isn't something that's just done once because you raised your hand. This is something that we do every day, that we preach the gospel to ourselves. I have to wake up every day of my life and fight this fleshly person who loves this pride and accolades and wants my life to be the center of my life. And every day we wake up and we have a funeral. And what we do is we grab our Bible and we hit our knees and we say, God, that part of me that has not yet submitted to you, may it die today. And fill me with your grace and fill me with your mercy. And may you be more beautiful to me today than you were yet yesterday because listen it's the only way you're going to make it it's the only way Jesus prays that we would believe in him and then the second thing is this Jesus prays that we would become one look at what he says I in them and you in me and we are all together that's a Beatles song okay 11 a.m a little dry today I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Do you know what I did this week? Can I confess? I argued with the Bible. I did. I got my Greek interlinear and I looked it up and I was like, surely perfectly isn't in there, right? Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. Then I tried to look at other authors and scholars that would try to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean to say it, right? And here's what I mean by that. That's a heavy statement. That's a heavy statement. And, and the word that Jesus uses means this. It's not like perfection, it's not like that Jesus is constantly looking down at us going, those idiots aren't even one yet. When will they become perfectly one? That's not the thing. Think about like a puzzle. You're putting a puzzle together and you find the corner pieces first, right? And then you're supposed to do, okay, you guys okay today? All right, do we need to have a coffee break or something? I'll preach angry. We can do that. That's fine, all right? It means like as you put a piece of puzzle together, that the puzzle is becoming more and more complete. That's what Jesus is asking for his church to be, that his church would be coming more and more complete. And I just believe in God's sovereignty that it's not a mistake that for three weeks we've been looking and studying one chapter of the Bible and over and over and over Jesus has prayed for unity, 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 unity. You know why? Because I believe that that is a word for 2020. So here's a couple thoughts. The first one is this. Unity must be a priority in prayer. Why? Because it's a priority in Jesus' prayer. I mean, that is the goal. Why? Because it's in those verses. So that the world would believe that you sent me. The greatest witness that the church of Jesus Christ has is that a diversity of people with different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, different all of that, are unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. Everybody else is trying to achieve that. Everybody else is trying to achieve that. And it's the church. When the church does that, the rest of the world will stop and go, wow, look at that. And... If it must be a priority in prayer, that tells me this isn't something that just happens naturally. You know why? Because we're sinners. I mean, we saw that unity is the goal all the way in marriage. Genesis 2.24, do you know the definition of marriage, what your goal of marriage is? Any married couple should be able to answer this question. What is the goal of your marriage? Happiness. That's great. Call me after the honeymoon, okay? Love. Okay, what does that mean? Well, right, okay. 
The goal of marriage is, is unity, oneness. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man should leave his father and his mother and get a job and hold fast to his wife. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Therefore a man should leave his father and his mother, reject passivity, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's the witness. That's the witness for the church as well. This has to be a priority for us in prayer. And listen, just question, when is the last time in your prayer life that you prayed for the local church and the church as a whole that they would be one? I was convicted of that question this week. I mean, this is a real thing. The second thing is this. Um, division is demonic. And I mean, every that should hit you very strong. If unity and oneness is the witness to the world that God has sent Jesus Christ, then that tells me that the opposite of that is ungodly. And we go all the way back to Genesis. What was the enemy's tactic in Genesis? A, separate the man and woman apart from each other. Hinder their relationship with God, and then the byproduct of that will be the weakness of their relationship with each other. Okay, so if your goal in marriage is that your marriage would become closer together as one, that's not the ultimate goal to focus on. The ultimate goal to focus on is your relationship with Jesus Christ, and then you and your husband's or you and your wife's relationship with Jesus Christ. And then anything else that comes against that, that is the enemy's tactic. And, and listen, by the way, everybody's trying to unify everybody right now. Have you noticed this in 2020? It's all about slogans, okay? So whether it's make America great again, 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 or keep it great again, again, or the soul of America, or Black Lives Matter, or whatever, everybody's trying to rally everybody for a cause, and if you're not for our cause, then you're not in, and then it becomes completely divisive. And at the end of the day, we must have the church of Jesus Christ's spiritual eyes to see through the division that is taking place in the world. Do you know the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not outside opposition? When you look in countries that are being persecuted and this, that, and the other, they're the healthiest churches. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is division from within the church. And when you look around at the wake of churches... Because we left here because they did this and they said that. And when the church loses the priority of unity in the mission, division takes place. And the third thing is this. Humility is the key to unity. That's it. How do you unify? Well, only Jesus Christ can unify. I mean, look at through the ages. I mean, the history of Christendom itself. The different types of people that were raising money for people in Honduras. All of that type of stuff. But humility is the way that in which that operates. Do you know what? Look up here. Don't miss this. I've never in my life, I've never in my life seen two humble people fighting. Think about it. I've never heard the conversation. Yeah, well, you love me so much. And your tone right now is so endearing and loving to me, I can't even stand it. I mean, think about it, guys. Humility is the key to unity. But, oh, man, I've seen people try to make a point. I've seen people be right. Be right. How's that going for you? Rightness. All by yourself, right. And the only way that you can humble yourself, notice in the scriptures it's a command, not a suggestion. Humble yourself before the Lord. Well, how do you do that? 
the only way that you can humble yourself is that you have to love something more than yourself. That's the key to humility, is loving something more than yourself. And Jesus is praying for this, that, that we would become one. And when I was thinking about this, um, I've recently become obsessed with President Abraham Lincoln and just the history of the United States. And I just read this fascinating book about his second inaugural address, because I'm a full-fledged nerd. So, okay, some guys lift weights. I read second inaugural address books, all right? But the reason why people think that this is probably the greatest speech that Abraham Lincoln ever gave, it's because it was at the quote-unquote end of the Civil War. If you know anything about American history and why the impact or this, that, and the other, by far one of the most impactful things that has ever happened to us as a nation is the Civil War. And Lincoln stands up on the inaugural day, and everybody wonders what's he going to say. I mean, is he going to say the North won, the South law? I mean, like, is he going to stick it to him? Is he going to say, we did this, we did that? 600 to 700,000 people dead, mostly men. There was a dip in human population for the next two decades. It was by far the most brutal war we've ever seen. Division, hatred, strife, all of those things. And Abraham Lincoln stands up and then hurdles these words that your kids still learn about today with malice towards none as we don't strive against one another. And then goes on to say that we bear the burden of this war. And what does he do? He unifies the nation. Why, why is that timeless? Was it just because it was a good speech? No. It's because it's what the human heart longs for. You see, listen, when it is a witness of unity like that, then the world will know. And can we be honest? Christians, please listen to me. Don't you dare. Don't you dare try to call out the world's hypocrisy and say this person that, and I can't believe the government's doing this and doing that if we are not honest to deal with the hypocrisy that's happening inside the church of Jesus Christ. The reckoning in 1 Peter says that judgment begins at the household of God. God's kids get it first. And so may we strive for this type of unity. And may we know that Jesus is praying this for his church. And the third thing is this. Jesus prays that we would be with him. This has been the verse that stuck with me all week. Father, there it is again. He says it so many times, just intimacy in prayer. Father, I desire, it's a big word in the original language. It means it's like it's a driving desire in his language. That they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's it. If you've ever wondered about heaven, if you've ever wondered about this, that, or the other, John 17, 24, highlight it, underline it, mark it. If your kids ever ask you what it's going to be like, what's the purpose of it, this is it. This is it. Down with, I mean, listen, the church of Jesus Christ has bought into the hallmark lie of heaven. The church has been sold a bill of goods for felt needs. So it can be sold in a Christian bookstore and we've neglected our Bible as to what it is. I mean, think about it. On a cloud all day long wearing a diaper? Are you kidding me? That sounds like a horrible idea for eternity. I don't want that. And then this idea, and listen, by the way, this is going to be a little bit threatening, but listen, I love your grandma and your grandpa and your dad and your mom, and yes, we will be united. Yes, we will be united with loved ones, but ultimately, 
ultimately what it is is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ and to behold his glory. And what we've learned is glory is what emanates from God. What wet is to water, what heat is to fire, is what glory is to God. And it is what every human heart longs for. And Jesus is praying that we would be with him. And not just that, that he desires that we would be with him. Do you know what some of us think? Some of us think, oh yeah, God saved me. God saved me, but he doesn't really like me. Like deep down in the depths of our heart, like, yeah, I'm saved, but I don't know if God like likes me. And Jesus is saying, I desire that they would be with me where I'm going. Listen, God not only saves us, but he delights in whom he saves. That's incredibly good news for us. So what's the application for our life? The first thing is this. Christians can have assurance of their salvation, man. This is the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. Listen, I'm not saying that you lose your salvation like a set of car keys. And I'm not into the debate of, well, you're once saved, always saved, debating on Facebook, and you don't even come to church. All right, I'm not even dealing with that argument. What I am saying is, is that Jesus Christ desires and prayed that I would be with him. So I'm putting all my chips in that basket. Because the good thing about grace and the good thing about Christianity is it's not your grip on God. That's not what this is about. Christianity is about God's grip on you in Christ. It's called grace. And Jesus is praying that we would persevere to the end. And man, when I had first gotten saved, listen, I don't know about you, but I got saved from some stuff. I got saved from some things in my life and I would write on these index cards because I didn't believe that God could save me. In verses like Jude chapter 1, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling and to present you holy and blameless unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these verses, I bank my life on these verses because they are the promises of God towards us in Christ. Christian, we do not live in fear, we do not live in guilt, and we do not live in shame, for our Father keeps His children, and He keeps His promises. You can have assurance for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the second thing is this, the point of heaven is to be in the presence of Jesus. That's it. Man, I don't know about you, but I feel it in my bones, I am so tired of hospital visits. I am so tired of the word cancer. I'm so tired of explaining to little kids, my Gaga's not around. I am weary of it. And it angers me to my core. And my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Listen, I love your grandpa, but if you daydream about heaven so you can see somebody else other than Jesus, you need to fervently hit your knees and ask God to give you a deep desire. A deep desire. Because this is what it's about. Do you understand? Do you understand, Christian, that, that as Paul says, this light momentary affliction is working for us, that it's doing something, that the suffering, that the sickness, that the cancer, that the slander, that all of that is doing something. And what's it doing? It's producing in us an eternal weight of glory that when you see his face, 
Listen, what I'm telling you sounds insane, but you will see his face, and it will be worth it. It's all I have to give you. It's the only hope that I can give you, is that if you repent of your sins and turn and trust in Jesus Christ, I can assure you that God keeps his own, and in the end, you will see his face, which tells me something else. We were made to behold God's glory, not to bear it. Here's what I mean by that. In Genesis, Adam and Eve exchanged the truth for the lie. And they believe the enemy comes along and says that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. That's the problem. Boil it down. Doesn't matter. That's the problem. Instead of worship God, we could be like God. And humanity has had a God complex ever since. You say, Jason, well, I don't believe that. We're evolving. We're doing... Oh, yeah? Anybody um, been around a toddler lately? Hey, I, sorry, Mama. I love your baby. I got babies too, and they're saved, and they need Jesus. Okay? Right? I mean, you don't have to teach this stuff. You don't have to teach selfishness or lying or those things. Why? Because we want to be our own God. And I have to make a full confession here, Okay? And this may affect you coming to Westside ever again, and it may definitely affect by the way that you view me, okay? But my family and me are hardcore Justin Bieber fans, okay? All right? Just full confession, all right? We're Bieber fans. We're dancing. We're doing the whole thing. We love it all, all right? And um, I was watching the documentary that was on YouTube about his newest album and stuff, and there's this scene where he has to go get hormone therapy and, and he started getting real personal. And he talked about this season in his life where he was pursuing you know, the high of drugs, crazy, reckless lifestyle. And here's why. This young man has been on a stage since he was 10 years old where stadiums of people have been screaming his name. Grown women that could be his grandmother are like, I love you. I mean, like crazy stuff, okay? I mean, celebrity status. And over a long period of time, his brain literally wouldn't work properly. And here's what I mean. At a birthday party, he couldn't be happy. At a funeral, he couldn't be sad. You know why? Because his brain neurologically would not release the dopamines and the chemicals that were supposed to happen because he could only feel that when 10,000 people were screaming his name. And it literally, he had to rewire his brain. And the moment I saw it, the moment I saw it, I thought, there it is. Why do we always see child stars and celebrities and people not being able? Because listen to me, the human frame literally, and you could be a non-Christian, and, and I'm still going to prove you wrong here. The human frame is not even biologically and neurology, right, able to handle that type of glory and fame. We were never able to bear it. We were always made to behold it. Because what you behold, you become. And how do we do that? How do we behold this glory of Jesus that we're talking about? We do it in prayer. I love what Pastor Timothy Keller says in his book on prayer. I'll close with these words. To behold the glory of Jesus means that we begin to find Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. 
It means a kind of prayer in which we're not simply coming to Him to get His forgiveness, His help for our needs, His favor and our blessing. Rather, the consideration of His character, His words, His work on our behalf becomes inherently satisfying and enjoyable, comforting and strengthening. Listen. If we do not behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then something else will rule your life. How do we behold that? How do we pursue God's glory? In prayer. Did you know that you don't have to wait to behold the glory of God and to experience the love of God as Father and intimacy you as His beloved child? What we've said is that's what prayer is at its very essence and its very core. So the question then becomes is, how does this affect our prayer lives? If if Jesus is praying for us, then how do we pray? We pray what Jesus prayed. Pray that people would believe in him. I mean, when's the last time, and we've said this question over and over and over again, If God answered all of your prayers from yesterday, how many people would be saved today? And it's not just people that don't know Jesus, but it's praying for your friends, your family who love Jesus, that today that they would wake up and find him more beautiful today than he was yesterday. And then secondly, that we would pray that the church would become one, unity. And not just pray and ask God for that, but then asking God what you can do to be a part of that. And then this, pray that people would be with Jesus, that we would be with him where he is. So here's what we're going to do. You ready for this? This is a crazy concept, all right? But we are in a series on prayer. We're going to pray in church. Here's what we're going to do, guys. Are you ready for this? You ready for this? We're going to apply what we just spent 40 minutes learning. It's a crazy concept in church and it might change your life, okay? But in just a moment, the band's gonna lead us in a time of these specific areas that you can pray, that you can pray with your family who you've come with and everything, that we would begin to pray. And listen, some of you are gonna say, Jason, I don't feel like praying. And you're right, I don't know what's going on in your life. But listen, here's what I do know. Jesus Christ is praying for you. So approach the throne of God with that type of boldness. So Westside, stand to your feet. And let us close our portion of the service as we always do with praying the Lord's Prayer out loud together. So Westside, lift your voices and let us pray how Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, knowing Jesus, that you're praying for us that your people would pray with the boldness of knowing, God, sometimes we feel like our prayers aren't even getting past the ceiling or we don't know what to pray or we don't know Jesus. You are not only our Savior, you are our friend. So we humbly bow before you, listening to your prayer. And God, may you hear the prayer and cries of your people. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.